Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of Full Measure After Hours. Today, we're going to talk about fake science, the scientific establishment, And what happened when Donald Trump tried to cut funding to the Communist China Wuhan Institute of Virology? This week on Full Measure, we are in summer reruns already. So for June 13th, there will be a repeat of The Battle Below, a fascinating cover story by Lisa Fletcher, who talked about the competition for rare earth minerals that we're in against China and why this is a really important competition that you may not have heard much about that impacts everything from microchips to all kinds of technology that we use for our everyday items. So I hope you will tune in this week on Sunday if you missed our original airing of the story, and I will tell you what else is coming up in Sunday's program in just a few minutes. What am I doing while I am already off researching and shooting new stories for our fall season six, which will begin in September. A lot of exciting stories we will have to talk about and report for you. Today in this podcast, we're going to take a look back at a very important story that I covered for Full Measure, which aired in 2017, but I think takes on new significance in light of everything we've learned about misreporting and disinformation on the COVID-19 pandemic. I called the report fake science, and it turns out that pretty much everybody is impacted by what's being said in this story, by what's being revealed by respected industry leaders about scientific and medical studies. They say that unseen interests are exerting enormous control over scientific research and what is or isn't published. They claim that a large percentage of articles in prestigious medical journals are simply not to be believed. These are not anonymous people making these claims. These are very prominent people that are really hard to argue with. The first person you will hear from is Dr. Marsha Angel of Harvard, who is a pioneer in the medical journal field. And coming from her, I think you will find these are credible, startling, and concerning revelations. I think physicians and the public have come to believe that drugs are much better and much safer than they really are. What makes Dr. Marsha Angel's skepticism so remarkable is where she places much of the blame on researchers and medical journals. That includes the prestigious New England Journal of Medicine, where she worked for 20 years and was its first female editor-in-chief from 1999 to 2000. Most people probably think an article is in a journal probably written at a university based on independent study, and that's that. Yeah, it used to be that way, as you described it, pretty simple. And it began to change as the pharmaceutical industry became 
richer, more powerful, more influential, and began to take over the sponsorship of probably most clinical research. I came to the New England Journal of Medicine in 1979. Starting about then was when you saw the drug companies assert more and more control. Until finally, they, over the next couple of decades, they began to treat the researchers as hired hands. They would design the research themselves. You know, you can do a lot of mischief in how you design a trial. Or we'll test this drug and we'll tell you whether it can be published or not. And so if it's a positive study, it's published. If it's a negative study, you never see the light of day. That happened in 2000. The makers of an experimental AIDS vaccine threatened to sue Dr. James Kahn, their lead researcher at the University of California, San Francisco, for $7 million to keep him from publishing study results showing the vaccine didn't work. An official of the company said something to the effect of, we've put $30 million into that study. We have our rights or something like that. Angel says as she applied due diligence to the many studies submitted to the New England Journal of Medicine, it started to feel like a losing battle. I would call up and say, okay, you've shown that your drug is pretty good, uh, but there's not a single side effect. Any drug that does anything is going to have some side effects. And I had people say, well, the sponsor won't let me. And so I became to be extremely distrustful of most of the research that was published. We did our very best. We often rejected things because it was clearly biased. Uh, but anything we rejected always ended up in another journal. All America. Angel left the New England Journal of Medicine in 2000, but kept her eye on the journal industry, which she says resisted meaningful efforts to rein in conflicts of interest. In 2009, she wrote an article that famously declared, it is simply no longer possible to believe much of the clinical research that is published. What would you say is the state of the journal landscape today and the New England Journal of Medicine particularly? I think that that role that the New England Journal used to fill, one was the role of being skeptical, the other was the role of caring about the ethics of the whole system. I think the journal has given that up. The New England Journal of Medicine has given that up. The New England Journal of Medicine declined our interview request, but told us since 1984, we've requested author disclosures. In 2009, the journal says it helped pioneer a universal form requesting that authors report all relevant financial conflicts during the most recent three years, and it posts the form and study sponsorship. Besides Dr. Angel, another powerful voice is also weighing in. The current editor-in-chief of the British journal Lancet, Dr. Richard Horton, wrote a scathing editorial saying much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Science has taken a turn towards darkness. So think about that. We're talking about the peer-reviewed published studies, not the strange stuff you see reported that has no basis, but the stuff that everybody counts on, the stuff that people often refer to as the science, that the people at the forefront of this are saying it is not to be believed, that much of it can't be trusted. Again, these are the studies that your doctors and my doctors read, the studies that public health officials often rely on when they're making decisions about medicine and policies. And doesn't this sound a lot like what's happened to the internet, social media, 
the news media in many respects. It's been co-opted by certain political and corporate interests so that certain information is put forth that may or may not be true when other information is not allowed that turns out to be true. It underscores the importance of doing your own research and trying to look at alternate sources. And as I've come to recommend, when you see a common narrative being shoved down your throat in the public discourse on the news and online, and when they're trying to controversialize or ban and censor contrary science and views, it's more important than ever that you seek out the information they're trying to censor so that you can see for yourself if there's something there that rings true that might actually be accurate. And you have to ask yourself, what special interests are trying to stop me from seeing this information and why? And I know that not everybody has time to do that kind of research. That's what we used to rely on the news for, to sort of sort through this sort of thing. But instead, the news largely has been turned into a tool to promulgate narratives and talking points and to further propaganda rather than sort through it for us, sadly enough. When we come back after a short break, we'll look at how this dynamic that I described and reported on in our 2017 cover story, how it came into play when we were looking at the reporting on the Wuhan lab and the COVID-19 origins. Do you have something to say and want to make your own podcast? Let me tell you how to do that for free with Anchor. Anchor has creation tools that let you record and edit your podcast right from your phone or your computer. You can even add any song from Spotify directly to your episodes. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more places. And you can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's all you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. We're back and we are talking about how there is a scientific establishment and there is fake science and why it can be impossible these days to get unconflicted, accurate scientific information. At the very least, it's difficult to know what can be trusted and what should not. This phenomenon was never more important than during the COVID-19 pandemic when so many voices are shouting, follow the science. And when perfectly valid opinions and scientific findings are being censored, silenced, controversialized by big tech and some in the media. All of this helps explain what happened last year when President Trump took what seemed to many people to be a perfectly reasonable step, ordering a halt to U.S. taxpayer funding of the Communist Chinese Research Lab in Wuhan, China, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that could have been the source of the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, to take you back to this time period, in April of 2020, the Chinese had refused to provide samples, samples the United States and the rest of the world needed to help figure out important things about the origins of COVID-19, what exactly was making it so unpredictable, how it knew seemingly as a virus to attack the vulnerabilities in an individual person, we and the rest of the world wanted samples from the Chinese to help us figure things out. But by April of 2020, and even today, they were refusing to help. That's a pretty big deal. They also were refusing to allow the United States to have inspections of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, even though we had helped fund it, and that our scientists had helped their scientists, and that we had partnered with their scientists on important and controversial studies and research, but no, they weren't going to allow us an inspection of the lab, and they otherwise were just not cooperating 
on the necessary steps to help us figure things out. So when President Trump got word that the U.S. was sending taxpayer money to the lab and its scientists, he ordered it stopped in April of 2020. Funds were blocked to the nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, the nonprofit that was responsible for dispensing some U.S. taxpayer money to the Wuhan lab. So what happened when the funding stopped? Well, the scientific establishment kicked into action. There was a concerted propaganda campaign in which scientists and special interests made the press think that the story was their story told their way. And the press dutifully reported it in a one-sided fashion that these funding cuts were political in nature, uncalled for, and going to cost lives. Well, the backlash was so strong that most people probably don't know this, but when I looked up what happened to it, not long after the funding was canceled by President Trump, the National Institutes of Health reinstated the grant to the nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance. There was a lot of pressure to do so with, again, the scientific establishment speaking against the funding halt. But at least there were some conditions imposed this time. Under orders from Trump, the China bat coronavirus part of the grant was suspended, pending the Wuhan Institute of Virology granting a request for an outside inspection. They would only get the money from the United States if they let the United States have the inspection that it had been wanting. The National Institutes of Health also made another condition. They made the project, the funding, contingent upon getting responses from the Chinese to outstanding questions and inquiries we had regarding the lab's practices in the COVID-19 outbreak. They were stonewalling, as they still are today. NIH also wanted EcoHealth Alliance, the middleman, to obtain a virus sample from the Wuhan lab. I think all of these to a neutral observer would seem to be perfectly reasonable conditions and requests. If we're going to send money to the communist Chinese to one of their research labs that may have been the origins of the COVID-19 pandemic, surely they should allow us inspections and access that we're requesting to help us fight this pandemic. Well, EcoHealth Alliance and its leader, Peter Daszak, criticized these common sense conditions, saying that they made their crucial research impossible. The press covered the story in lockstep on narrative Here's what NPR said at the time. Here's a quote. The U.S. government has suddenly terminated funding for a years-long research project in China that many experts say is vital to preventing the next major coronavirus outbreak. Now, one of the great ironies in all of this is that all of the funding and all of this controversial research that we're talking about, we were told was to try to prevent a COVID-19 from happening. And it didn't. And now we're being told... You have to keep funding the same researchers and studies and labs that didn't prevent the COVID-19 so that we can prevent another COVID-19. This research that was done over the years was for the purpose, remember, of making bat coronavirus that was not infectious in people, making it very infectious and dangerous in people, that's called gain of function, for the purpose of trying to have a vaccine or a therapeutic invented and ready to go if it actually happened in the natural environment. And yet when it did happen, we were not prepared. It almost seemed like we were starting from scratch in some respects. We've had billions and billions of tax dollars spent on pandemic preparedness over the years, but every time there seems to be a threat, it's like we're inventing the wheel once again, as if we'd never done it before, as if no money had gone into the planning. In any event, as for that theory, 
that COVID-19 could have originated in the Wuhan lab. Throughout 2020, there was a concerted effort on the part of some of the very scientists involved in this research and funding, an effort to not let that discussion be had. And the press did not do its job in making sure it reported neutrally and factually on this and included both sides of a story. The same NPR report I quoted a minute ago dismissively wrote in April of 2020, as noted in an NPR story published last week, many scientists have discounted that theory, the lab theory, as nearly impossible. But as I've reported, many scientists did not discount the theory as nearly impossible. Numerous scientists directly involved in the genetic analysis early on and in related projects to COVID-19 had already concluded the Chinese lab was the most likely culprit. And genetic analyses by U.S. government scientists had already revealed hallmarks of man's intervention within the virus. You just didn't hear much about it on the news or online because the discussion was not allowed. I talked to numerous important scientists at the time who were very close to this issue and knew all of this, but were not authorized to speak out. By the way, they also disagreed with a lot of the reporting that was happening in public and a lot of the public health advice, quite frankly, that was being given. But they told me they dare not speak out. Again, these were individual conversations I had with scientists, but they sounded very similar. They told me that they did not speak out for fear of appearing to contradict Dr. Fauci, who was being canonized by the press. And secondly, there was a propaganda campaign to controversialize anybody who spoke of these things as coronavirus doubters. And two separate scientists involved in all of this said they were afraid to speak about certain policies that were being suggested or advice that was being given that they thought was completely wrong because they were afraid they would be mislabeled as coronavirus doubters. Now, of course, the experts that the media were citing and relying upon were often the very conflicted scientists involved in the controversial research with the Chinese to begin with and involved in the funding, as I've mentioned. This was not disclosed in most of the news reports. 60 Minutes on CBS went a step further and published what in hindsight is an embarrassingly obsequious report on the leader of that nonprofit EcoHealth Alliance, Peter Daszak. Instead of pointing to Daszak's controversial research partnerships with China and the gain-of-function work and the relationship with the Wuhan lab, the story portrayed him largely as a savior of all things viral, a man unfairly undercut by an unscientific and political White House under President Trump. And the 60-minute story didn't reveal that both behind the scenes and in public, Daszak and Dr. Anthony Fauci of the National Institutes of Health were working hard to try to discredit the lab theory, usually without publicly disclosing their own roles in securing U.S. taxpayer funds for the controversial research partnerships with the communist Chinese. You can see my investigation on all of this. It's still posted at CherylAckeson.com. But to put a button on it, on August 27, 2020, it was announced that the National Institutes of Health had awarded an even larger grant of taxpayer money, $7.5 million to EcoHealth Alliance. All of this is to show what happens when there is a scientific establishment, much like when there is a political establishment that seeks to hide certain information and advance particular narratives. And when the media goes along with it uncritically instead of doing our job and making sure we represent various viewpoints and examine conflicts of interest and different sides to the story. Now, don't leave me just yet because after a short break, I'm going to tell you what else is coming up 
on the episode of Full Measure this week, June 13th. Back again. And besides our cover story on Full Measure on June 13th, which we call The Battle Below, I have a really interesting story on coronavirus relief fraud. You will be shocked and disgusted by some of the misspending, waste, fraud, and abuse that they've already caught in those giant, massive COVID spending bills. I speak with somebody from the General Accountability Office about that. And it inspired me to take some time, which I'll be doing this summer, to look at more of the fraud because a lot more has come in. I'll have a big report on that in the fall when we come back with Season 7. Also, on Sunday's program, there will be a segment, one of those segments that I sometimes do, that talks about a list of media mistakes, some of the really bad mistakes made by formerly well-respected news outlets, the kinds of mistakes they've been making since about Oh, the 2016 time period, often with impunity. If you're really interested in that sort of thing, you can always go to CherylAckison.com, and I now have two lists going. Click on the tab that says Special Investigations, and you'll get a drop-down menu, and you can find Media Mistakes, Biden Era, and Media Mistakes on Trump. Both of those should be of interest to you. They're well-documented. The most extensive lists I've found As I mentioned, there are plenty of lists that have been made by the media, practically everybody, listing President Trump's supposed lies. But I found pretty early on in his candidacy and presidency that nobody, it seemed, was making a good comprehensive list of the media's mistakes. The media was hesitant to do that, I think, because, well, for two reasons. Number one, they didn't want to do anything that made it look like they had done something wrong and or that Trump had done something right, so they were biased. But secondly, another phenomenon since President Trump has entered the political scene is that if there was criticism of the false reporting and the mistakes made against Donald Trump, that is either misperceived or misreported as someone being supportive of Donald Trump. And the idea of anybody in the media supporting Donald Trump or not hating Donald Trump is just so outrageous today that nobody dare do that. Everybody's afraid to be put in that category. Well, I'm not. When I'm criticizing the mistakes or critiquing the media's performance or noticing when journalism practices aren't being followed, that has nothing to do with being supportive or non-supportive of a particular candidate or person. It's actually just calling out my own industry for the things that we're not doing right. This is something we should all be interested in. And I'm not going to be bullied into not doing that simply because critics and people that don't like President Trump and people that want to report only on the narrative simply because they then may call me names or falsely accuse me of supporting Donald Trump. Hopefully that's one of the reasons that you're interested in the nonpartisan reporting and the off-narrative reporting that I do on Full Measure and at CherylAckison.com. I hope you enjoy today's podcast. I hope you'll check out Full Measure every Sunday throughout the summer. We'll be back with a new and fresh season seven, our seventh year, beginning in September. I hope you'll check out my other podcast, the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Subscribe to both of them. Leave a good review. Share them with your friends. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself. <laughs>